This is the Escape the Zoo Podcast. With your host, Daniel Clark. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Escape the Zoo Podcast, where we talk everything wildlife with photographers, cinematographers, conservationists, and scientists. Today's guest is Jeremy Hans, a journalist with experience writing about wildlife climate change, energy politics, animal behavior, and much more for outlets like Manga Bay and The Guardian. We talk about selenodons, venomous, nocturnal, burrowing mammals found in the Caribbean that can trace their lineage back to the dinosaurs. The Sumatran rhino, a small, hairy rhino on the brink of extinction that does live in Indonesia, but no one ever sees it, as well as Half-Earth, an ambitious yet exciting proposal that aims to be the future of conservation and save life on this planet. It's a really interesting conversation. I hope you enjoy it. So without further ado, here is my chat with the one and only Jeremy Hans. Well, Jeremy, thank you so much for coming onto the show. I've been following your work for a while now, and I'm a big fan and really appreciate you taking the time. Well, thanks so much for having me. I'm really, I'm excited to chat about the work and conservation in general. Uh, I wanted to jump in with something that we had talked about briefly before, which is an animal that I had never heard about until we were discussing it called the Selenodon. And since we chatted about it, I've done some more research on it. And it's just one of the most fascinating animals that I've come across that I'd never heard about. So can you talk a little bit about what a Selenodon is and why you were working with it and uh, just kind of that whole story? Yeah, sure. So um, let's start with what a selenodon is. It's it, it's 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 one of these animals, and there are uh, and the the longer I do this kind of uh, journalism writing, uh, conservation writing, the more I realize how many strange, wonderful creatures are out there that none of us know about, <laughs> and not even scientists really. Right. Um. You know, know that much about a lot of these animals, and a lot of them are endangered, like the selenodon. So the selenodon is it's there are two surviving species. There used to be many more. Um, but it's basically, it's in the, the larger shrew and mole order. So it's like a giant shrew. Basically, uh, I think when people look at it, they probably think it's a giant rat, but it's, it's, I find them quite beautiful. Um, there's two species. There's the Hispaniel, uh, Selenodon, and then there's the Cuban Selenodon and the Cuban is far more rare. Um, but I first discovered, like, I didn't know anything about this. I had been writing about conservation for a number of years and then, there is an organization called the Zoological Society of London, which started what's called the EDGE program, okay. which is this program that's really focused on endangered species that are also uh, evolutionarily distinct. So in other words, they've been separated out from the evolution line for a long time. Mm-hmm. And in, in sort of non-scientific parlance, if we just want to put a, a different word to that, yeah. you just they're weird. <laughs> they're, there's nothing on, on earth like them. They're strange and weird animals. And so what the EDGE program did is they put out the list of the top 100 mammals that were both strange, weird, evolutionarily distinct and endangered. How does that happen? Sorry, not to cut in, but how does an animal become evolutionarily distinct? Either either an animal an animal branches off and nothing else is related to it, right? Mm-hmm. There's no other animals that are like it's not it's only branching off into maybe a single species and it sort of stays there and it, you know, uh, it doesn't change over time. 
Or uh, what often happens too is you might have an animal that's really successful, branches off into lots of different species, but over time, a lot of the species become extinct and all of a sudden we're left with okay, only one species left. So the Selenodon used to have many more species and they used to roam all over the Caribbean. And before they were in the Caribbean, uh, it's because the Caribbean, the, the islands actually broke off of you know the North American and sure, South American yeah. plates. They were in North and South America during the dinosaurs. We can get into that in a second. But basically that's what evolutionarily distinct means. Basically it doesn't have relatives. It doesn't have a lot of close relatives. Interesting. So there are lots of other animals that are like the aardvark, for example, I think is one of the most evolutionarily distinct mammals on the planet. Um, you know, it's it's a weird kind of pig-like, anteater-like thing, but like there's no other animal that's related to it. And it's, so that's what makes an animal evolutionarily distinct. Got it. Whereas something like a lion, you know, you have lots of relatives, right? You have tigers, you have leopards, you have all these other big cats that are related. Mm -hmm. And so, and so again, in a non-scientific way, you can just say this is a really <laughs> weird animal. And oftentimes these animals that are evolutionarily distinct are uh, throwbacks. There are animals that are ancient relics that have not changed in a long time, that maybe there used to be a lot more of them. Uh, of different species, but they've gone extinct for often a variety of reasons, but in, in more recent times, often humans. Mm -hmm. um, so the Selenodon has just two surviving species. Well, one species survives in the Dominican Republic and maybe in Haiti, and that's the island of Hispaniola. And the other species survives in Cuba. But what I, I, so I'm looking at this list of the top 100 most, you know, weird and endangered species at the edge. And I saw this animal at the top and I'm like, what, <laughs> what is this? I've never... <laughs> And I fell into the Selenodon rabbit hole. I got, I'm an obsessive person as a journalist, as someone who loves writing and, and stuff. You know, you, you get interested in certain things and they grab your imagination and then you can't let go. 100%. And so yeah. I be, for, yeah. So I became for years just weirdly obsessed with this giant rat-like <laughs> creature, but it's not a rat. Um, and what I think, what, one of the things that really tripped me about it uh well, first of all, let me just say a couple things that make it unique. So the, the, the animal has, uh, it's venomous. It's the only mammal that actually shoots venom out of its teeth like a, a snake. Wow. Right? That's crazy. And it's, and so selenodon in ancient Greek means grooved tooth. And so that's how it got its name. Okay. Um, the Hispaniolan selenodon is the only animal that we know of in the entire animal kingdom that has a ball and socket joint for a nose. So like literally its nose can twist around a ball. Like it has a ball for a bone and then a, what? And the nose. Yeah. So when you see it, like you can see this, 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 um, and the Cuban Slendodon doesn't have this, but like this, this nose can just move in crazy ways. Um, it's like one of those they, blow up balloons at a used car dealership. That's just yeah, kind of waving kind of around like crazy. And the animal itself is, it's, it's nocturnal. It comes out at night and it basically digs around and eats grubs and insects. It lives under the ground most of the day. Um, it's got very small beady eyes because it doesn't need good eyesight. Mm -hmm. um, and it makes all these it makes all these strange sort of chirping, clicking noises, which they think is actually echolocation. So like it sees like a dolphin perhaps, and that it, you know it's it's or a bat and it's yeah. bouncing off. Yeah, it's very strange. Um, and it has these kind of old man crinkly toes and long sharp claws for digging. Um, the Hispaniola Selenodon is a beautiful sort of orange tawny color. The Cuban Selenodon is a black and white color and it's smaller. And they're just very weird. But what really just boggled my mind was when I was reading about it is that they've done some research and they've discovered that this animal, the Selenodon, is virtually unchanged from the dinosaur period. So we're basically talking about one of the first mammals. You know, some of the very earliest mammals were small. Mm -hmm. They were shrew-like, like a Selenodon. Um, and they were living among dinosaurs and most of the time probably 
dinosaurs, at least the big ones, would totally ignore them, right? They right. would have no reason to really interact. <laughs> Perhaps the Slenodon would get into fights with, you know, small dinosaurs or uh, be eaten by them or, or it would eat maybe tiny ones. Um, but so this animal, it, uh, the, the project that eventually emerged around this animal, there's a conservation research project that lasted for a few years, and it was called the Last Survivors Project. And it's an apt title because this is an animal that somehow survived the comet that hit, you know, the Earth that wiped out the vast majority of dinosaurs. Of course, some of the dinosaurs survived and turned into, evolved into birds over time. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the vast majority of large animals were wiped out. And this Lenodon, probably because it could burrow and live under the Earth and live on insects, survived that. And then it survived, you know, uh, millions, tens of millions of years. It floated off onto the Caribbean, survived there when it went extinct on the mainland. And then it survived humans. You know, the first indigenous people come, they wipe out a lot of the uh, population of animals that had lived. There were other Selenodons that got wiped out. Mm -hmm. There are uh, hutias, which are rodents that live in trees. There was, in some parts of the Caribbean, they had hutias as big as black bears. So like giant, giant rodents. What? Wiped out. Yeah. They survived uh, monkeys that used to live in Hispaniola were wiped out. So all these animals that humans probably just hunted to extinction or deforested or right. burned out the land. The Selenodon and the hutia. There is a one surviving hutia in Hispaniola, and there are other species of hutia around the Caribbean. But they are the only ones that sort of survive. They're the only land-based, not bat. What's a hutia so, look like? So a hutia looks like, like, do you know what a capybara is? A capybara is like the world's largest rodent. Yes. Uh, and they live in the Amazon, and they're very distinct looking. It looks like a mini capybara with a very long tail, and it lives in the trees. So it's kind of like a squirrel in that it, that's the sort of the place it takes. Okay. But it's... It, and, and some of them, they actually have a prehensile tail, like a monkey, where they can, like, hang and move. And they're incredible. I've seen one in the wild when I was in the Dominican Republic as well. Um, but these are the last survivors. And this Lenodon is particularly fascinating to me because I, I just keep picturing this little thing running around under the feet of the dinosaurs and then surviving all these cataclysms. And then Columbus, the first place he hits is Hispaniola. Mm -hmm. He wipes out the indigenous population. He enslaves them. He murders them. You know, and subsequent European civilizations, you know, basically wipe out all the humans on that island, most of them. Um, and somehow the Selenodon survives that. And so it's still here. It's still with us. And now it's got new threats and new struggles. But uh, so I became obsessed with this Is animal. Is it doing <laughs> well on the areas where it lives? No. Uh it is struggling. Um, so currently the Hispaniola Selenodon, it used to be considered endangered. It's now been moved to vulnerable, which is good news. It, it survives in more habitat than people thought. But where it survives, it's very threatened today by especially dogs. Okay. Um, so uh, in places like Hispaniola and Dominican Republic and Haiti, you know, dogs often will just run around strays. Okay. Uh, oftentimes they're not even owned by people. They're, there's not a lot of, you know, uh, control over the, or dogs or cats. And the Selenodon is sometimes prey to these dogs. You know, the Romans, the forest, they're looking for food. They'll catch a Selenodon. They'll, they'll eat it or try to, or they'll kill it probably. And, you know, it's, again, it's venomous, so it can, but the venom isn't particularly strong. It's probably mostly used uh, to kill insects and also maybe as, a, as a, again, a leftover thing in which it had to fight against more, perhaps, predators way back in the day. No one really knows why it has the venom. Right. But, it's, so dogs are a big issue. Also, uh, Dominican Republic is a developing nation. There's, there's a significant amount of forest, but a lot of the forest is being lost to agriculture. Uh, there's a lot of illegal logging for charcoal. And then you have the situation in Haiti, which is quite desperate, and people coming over the border from Haiti. And that's also 
causing conflict and issues where more forest is being lost for uh, for charcoal and for agriculture. Mm-hmm. So, and the animal needs forest to survive. Um, it needs habitat. <laughs> and so it's it's struggling. Um, and I think, the, to me, the biggest threat today, the Slenodon, is really just the, the lack of knowledge about it, right? The ignorance. You know, when we were in the Dominican Republic, I went with my wife. You know, most of Dominicans don't necessarily know what this animal is. I've never heard of it. Yet it's one of there are only two mammals that live on land that are native there, mm-hmm. and that's one of them. So you know, and it's a wait. Really, can you say that again? There's only two mammals in all of the Dominican. In all of that's the Dominican native? Republic, that's native. Well, so they have bats, land mammals. Okay. So the only two land-based mammals that are native that are survived in the Dominican Republic is the Selenodon and the Hutia. Oh, that's interesting. And that's and they have and then they have a bunch of bats. It was interesting too because it shows that the Selenodon is so old because when you think of islands in general, they basically have no native mammals because if they're volcanic, they appear out of nowhere and mammals could never get there by sea, by wind or through flight or whatever. But if it broke off, then it makes sense Mm -hmm. that if there was a mammal there when it broke off millions of years ago, then it would still be there. It's kind of crazy. Yeah. And if you had gone, you know, 10,000 years ago or even just two, 3,000 years ago, you would have probably found many more species, right? Many more species mm-hmm. of Selenodon. There was another shrew-like animal that lived there called, I'm going to probably say this, I'm going to butcher this, Neophontes or something. That's a completely extinct family of animals, but it's related to shrews and Selenodons. Um, there was, like I said, there was monkeys. There was many more species of Hutia, including giant Hutia. And so again, when humans got there, they basically probably wiped them out or various environmental climate sure. changes may have also done some of them in. So but these are the only two left. Um, and then there's a, you know, they have a wonderful diversity of bats in the region as well. Um, so, so I got obsessed with this animal. And at the time I was working full time for Manga Bay, which is an environmental news site. Uh, I think it's one of the strongest, I'm going to, I'm partial, but I think it's one of the best sites on the internet for environmental and tropical news. And I got my start there. And at the time, uh, my boss was incredibly wonderful. And he would basically just give me a certain amount of money every year to go travel somewhere and do some stories on the ground. Because as a journalist, that's that's like the best of the best if you can get on the ground and do a story. And so I was like, I want to do a story on this, you know, prehistoric <laughs> dinosaur mammal. And he's like, go for it. It's like, I, I know, give you I, one trip been, a year and this is what you're choosing. Yes, this is what I, and I had, I mean, I was that, and I knew that there was a researcher on the ground. I knew that there was this program going on. So I knew that I might have a chance to see the species. And if not to see the species, you know, at least to see where it lives, to hear about it, to talk about it. And I had been to places like the Amazon. I had been to Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa. I'd been to Asia. And so, you know, uh, this was kind of like, it was, I was solely, I think I'm probably the only, one of the only people who has ever gone to the Dominican Republic, which is a beautiful country, beautiful beaches, wonderful coral reefs, you know, wonderful people, wonderful food. And I'm the only one who's ever probably gone for the Selenodon, you know. <laughs> That's like the only reason I went. I'm like, screw the beaches, screw all this, you know. Yeah, I'm gonna I mean, go, we did some of that I'm too. I'm gonna go find this shrew. I'm gonna go find this giant dinosaur shrew. Yeah. Uh, so my wife and I went there. Um, and in order to find it, we we land in Santo Domingo. Does your wife Beautiful share this city. passion, or is she like, why are you bringing me on this trip? No, she she well she knows for one thing I'm I'm a nervous traveler I get very anxious so it's helpful to have her around. Okay. <laughs> um. So that's that was very helpful. She she shares my passion for nature and love of it. She wasn't so like obsessed with this Lenadon. <laughs> 
you know, vicariously, she understood why I liked it so much, but it wasn't like, but she loves traveling. So any chance for her to go on these trips was, was a real gift for both of us. Okay. I mean, at the time we had a young, we had our daughter who had just turned two. So it was a little hard to leave her for 12 days, but I'm like, I got to go see this London while I can. Um, so we go to Santa Domingo and then we basically hire a driver, a local man who drove us from there to a town called Pedernales and Pedernales is right on the border of Haiti and it's a frontier town. It's kind of like, like the American West in the Dominican Republic, like it's it's got its own culture, its own language, its own music. It's very sort of country western, but Caribbean style. It was very fascinating. Yeah, and so we go there and we meet the researcher um, Rosalind Kennerly, and she has been studying the Selenodon for a few months out there. She is tracking it. She's putting. She's basically she's catching them and putting radio collars on them to understand their movements. Um, and this is back, I think, in 2013. I'm going to say. 2012, Are those radio collars typically intrusive? Like, what is it like for? I always see the mountain lions like out here in in yeah. LA. They always put radio collars on the mountain lions, and I like that looks like it sucks to have on it. <laughs> I know, right? You've, do you know? Well, like, do yeah, they do? You know, it's, do they know how much it bothers the whatever animal gets put on? I'm I sure think, it depends. I think most scientists are going to tell you it doesn't. I don't know if they actually know. Okay, you know yeah. they're going to say like we don't think it does. We think the the animal goes around and to, to, you know, from my own anecdotal experience, like, you know, uh, the Slenodon after it was put on seemed fine and went and ran away, you know, like it, it didn't, you know, it was doing its, it started foraging, looking for insects and stuff. It didn't seem, but it is a large collar with a, with a, with a, you know, a little radio thing on it. Um, so I can't imagine it, it makes life easy, but you know, it's one of those things where, What's the benefit versus the drawback? The drawback is you might make this animal annoyed and stress it out a little more than normal. But the benefit is that you can learn a lot about this animal and hopefully then use that for conservation. Sure. So it's it's I think it's always tricky to find that in science that 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 drawback. Um, and what is the, the what is in that specific scenario? I'm sure they do it for a bunch of different research purposes. Was it more to track their movements or was it to find different populations and see where this thing was going? No, it was to track the movement. So the, we know so little about the Slanodon that they didn't know, they don't know like how large the range is, uh, how many dens it's using, where it's feeding. Basically, it's to track where is where is it at what time okay, to cool. track its movement. So basically, get some very basic baseline data because no one had ever done that with this species before. Um, no one had really done much research on the species except for sort of the evolution and studies, but no one had ever done actual behavioral research really that much on the species. Okay, cool. So we go down there, we hired a guide, and then he drove us, you know, about six hour trip through the most beautiful landscapes and, you know, incredible Caribbean, you know, views of the sea and wonderfulness. And then we get to this town and uh, meet Rosalind. We talk about kind of the thing. And what she has done is she has hired local people, local hunters. Uh, people who would be hunting mostly uh, wild pig. So they have a lot of wild pigs mm-hmm. in the area now. Again, not a native species, but one that was introduced there and now is is kind of it's kind of hunted for sport and for eating. Yeah, feral pigs just destroy everything. Yeah, they do. They do. It's a it's a it's it can be a big issue. Um so she's using some local people who have done uh, hunting and guides and you know who know the forest. And basically, yeah, the plan is to go out and find this <laughs> dinosaur mammal, the Selenodon. Uh, so we, we stay up, you know, pretty late till like 10 and then we all get into cars and we drive out there. And I, at this point, I'm not entirely sure, like, what's my role here? You know, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm a journalist. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm alone for the ride. And then basically 
Nicholas, who's the main sort of hunter guy, and he's like probably at the time was in his 50s. Very handsome guy, beard, scraggly beard, lithe. He's got his favorite machete that he's had for years around with him. And he knows the forest. Like, I mean, he's a forest dude. Like, it was incredible how much he knew where he was and knew what was going on. You know, he's this is someone who grew up in the country, uh, but not like Americans grew up in the country. Like, this is a guy who knew, you know, knew how to just get around in like this forest. So we get there, we stop. And then we're like, okay, let's go find the Selenodon. And I'm like, how, how is this going to happen? Like, how do you, like, I, I assume they're going to go to the dens and like wait for it to come out and then, you know, yeah. use five guys to like trap it. Um, no, no, it's, it's literally just Nicholas walks into the woods and I follow him and we both have headlamps on and we just start running through this small, this woods and the woods is like low lying trees in a dry forest brambles everywhere this is not like a primary forest where you get like cathedral look this is like you're just tripping and falling and i i must have fallen so many times and but it was a i was a beautiful you know my adrenaline's pumping it was such a beautiful wonderful experience the moon is out and i'm just chasing this dominican guy and he's like just super fast and jumping over logs and you know i felt like he was doing gymnastics and I'm like, yeah don't lose me and there was a few times when he would get way ahead and i didn't know where he was and i would just stop and be like he knows where i am he's gonna come back to find me <laughs> and he did um but basically he is his senses are so keen that he can hear the selenodon moving in the forest and then he will go and try and catch it by hand like he will leap on this animal that is venomous you know wait by and like, he will catch grab it. them Yes, grab them by hand with gloves. But like, yeah, literally pick them up by hand. Are they as fast as like a rat? They're fast. They're they're pretty fast. They're a little funny because when they walk on land, they sort of wobble. They look like they're totally drunk, like they've had a too few a few too many pints. Um, but they can still run scurry fast when they want. You know, when they're feeling That's like they're crazy. Threatened. Yeah. So we're running through this forest and, you know, there's a number of times where he's like, he's like looking at the nose pokes of, and he's like, oh, this is a week old and this is a day old. And I'm like, of like the, you- <laughs> the nose of the, where the nose is going into the ground to find what? food. Yeah. I always yes. think it's fascinating like- how if you've spent a lot of time in urban areas and then go somewhere where people haven't, like they, they just happen yeah. to live out in the wilderness or by the rainforest, how you realize evolutionarily you're much more keen to like be good at living out in the wilderness than you ever thought i mean i was reading a book called grizzly year which is awesome if you haven't read it it's about a Mm. vietnam vet who goes and he tracks grizzlies for like his entire life because when he comes back from the war he just doesn't like living in civilization and just kind of likes to camp out on his own in yellowstone and the way he was talking about how quickly his senses readjusted and he could track birds and understand like when they might be going to find food or when they might be fleeing from a predator or when just understanding all wow. the symbiotic relationships of the natural world and how yeah. a human can actually pick that up to me like i would i would watch like lord of the rings when i was a kid and you'd see aragorn who was the ranger tracker and <laughs> you'd be like nobody can actually do that and like yeah. track animals or track people and they can it's just that when you're living in a concrete jungle, you just have zero use for it. And those senses become dulled. Yeah. They become real lazy. And, you know, I mean, I, I grew up on a farm in the country, but I never had senses like this, you know, like, and, and even just going like, it would probably part of it, I think is just the, the sense of dolly. And, and also the, the, the fact that these people have spent 
years of their lives in these forests and they know them. Right. You know, it's, it's, it's not threatening to them. It's not scary. They just, it's just home. I've been with indigenous uh, people in the Amazon and like following them was similar experience. And like, I'm just falling over and I'm sweating like crazy. And he's just like, whatever, you know, (laughs) and he's following monkeys to show them to me. And, and, you know, and I, and, you know, and the one thing they always say in the Amazon to tourists and, and journalists too, is don't ever step off the path, you know, never leave the path. And the first thing you do is you, you know, you're tracing an indigenous person off the path yeah, <laughs> because they, they, they know the area. Right. Um, but yeah, it's, it is so incredible to see what, and then, and then you think back to like, okay, humans during the Pleistocene, no wonder we were able to hunt the way we were and no wonder how, how in tune we must've been to nature because you can see what happens to just modern day people who have lived, you know, who have lived much more closely. Yeah, nature. definitely. So yeah, so I'm, I'm chasing him through the forest uh, and I, you know, I'm completely useless in this scenario. I'm not going to catch the Slanodon. I'm not. In fact, I'm probably worse than useless. I'm probably a big hindrance because I'm making so much noise. Right. Um. But eventually, you know, he's, he, you know, uh, he's running around, and we take. He takes a few cigarette breaks and stuff. But eventually, you know, I hear him start shouting in excitement as he leaves me. At one point, he'll leave me to sit, and then he'll go and try and catch one. So he shouts in excitement. And I run over to him and he's literally has a Slenodon in his hand. He's holding it up by the tail. The reason they do that is they seem the least stressed out when they're held by the tail, as opposed to holding them by the body. Um, and she seemed at that point, she seemed relatively calm. She's just kind of wiggling around. It was a beautiful female. And I'm just kind of like, oh my God, you know, like yes. after, you know, five, six years of obsessing about this animal, reading everything I could, which is not much because there's only a few papers at the time, you know, i i bought books online, even though they would have just mentioned it briefly. Like I was crazy. I'd watch YouTube videos. Um, you know, here I am actually in the, in the presence of this animal. And then he's like, here, take it. Like <laughs> holding the animal out to me. And I'm like, I don't, what are you talking about? Like, I'm a journalist. I don't touch things. Yeah. Like I don't take things. <laughs> this is not my job. I'm supposed to be the independent observer. He's like, no, 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 please take it. Cause he's got a bag. He needs to put the Slenodon in the bag to get it to the researcher. And so all of a sudden, you know, I'm, I'm holding on to the Slenodon. And I'm like, you know, in my head, I'm just like, I'm touching something that has, you know, survived all these cataclysms that's here. And it was just, it was a really, you know, it, it's one of those things where it made all the planning for this trip, uh, leaving my daughter behind for 12 days when she's two, it made the whole journey worth it, right? Like that one moment made it so worth it to to, to be in the presence of this animal. It was a real honor, you know, I, and I know it wasn't pleasant for the animal, but for me, it was a real honor. Um, and I also knew that, you know, as a journalist who's done a lot of writing about science, I knew that there was a purpose to this. We sure. weren't just catching the Selenodon for fun. So we put the Selenodon in a cloth bag, and then uh, Nicholas realizes he's misplaced his machete, so he goes off to get his machete. And I'm just sitting there again alone, like just <laughs> adrenaline going through me, being like, I'm holding this thing in the bag. You know, it's it's kind of like if you if you had taken me at 13 and shown me a velociraptor, you know, right, right. after Jurassic Park had come out. I mean, I was just just so enamored and so excited and then nicholas came back we go back and we go to the researcher and you know it's amazing to watch researchers when they have to handle animals because they do things so quickly she had everything ready to go they take the animal out they do a quick few quick measurements take some samples and the animal at this point now now that we're not holding it by the tail it's stressed you know it's yeah it's spitting it's shitting it's doing Ugh. all these things like it's like yeah. yeah it's like it's not a it's not a happy animal uh, so the researcher knows, you know, she had warned me ahead of time, like, look, it's not, you know, it's not gonna be pleasant for about a minute. And so they do all this stuff. They get the collar on. Are they, they do loud? It remarkably Is it quickly. Screaming? It was screaming. Yeah. It was squealing. 
very loudly, you know, wanted to get away, understandably. Yeah. Uh, it, you know, in its mind, it probably thinks it's, we're going to eat it. And so uh, it was clearly, you know, and it's one of those scenes where, you know, when people say animals are automatons, you know, um, when people describe animals as not having any emotion or feeling, it's like, that. it's the most ludicrous idea because, you know, you go around any animal and you you can tell that they have, you know, connections and emotions and feelings, right? Yeah, definitely. So, you know, this animal is in distress, basically. Uh, but they work incredibly quickly. This is a team that had worked together for a number of months. So very quickly, they they do what they need to do to get the vitals. And then they put the collar on. And then, you know, really, we only spent a few minutes with this animal. And then Nicholas picks it up in his hands <laughs> and just goes and takes it into the forest, sets it down. And my wife is snapping photos. And I'm just like, ah! <laughs> and that was my, you know, five minutes with the Selenodon. But it was, you know, something I will remember the rest of my life in one of the you know, one of the, one of the coolest moments of my life in a career wise, you know, just to be able to have that, that honor of, of meeting this animal. And, and, you know, and I think in, in writing about it later and taking what I kind of take away from that is both the wonderfulness of this animal surviving this long. And then the, the tragedy of the fact that no one knows about it. And it's, it's basically a species that is ignored by most conservation groups you know, and now we are we are perilously close, probably, to losing the Cuban Slenodon. And as far as I know, right now, there's no one really doing any. You know, the research program I was out there for uh, is ended; it's complete, uh, and the conservation program is done. And there are some great conservation groups doing really good work in the Dominican Republic. But as far as I know, no one's doing specific work on this species anymore. What was the reason for it being? I don't think downlisted is the right word, but changed from endangered to vulnerable. Is is the sure. Is it doing better? No, it's not doing better. It's, it's it's one of those classic moments in science where they just realized they didn't have, they didn't know. We knew so little about it. They didn't realize it was in more places than they thought. Okay. So basically it's range expanded. You know, when they, they were discovered in places, they're like, oh, we didn't realize it was here. You know, and they would discover it and doing these sort of these surveys, right? And so they expanded its range. So they realized, okay, it's, it's got more habitat than we thought. Uh, and it's in more places. And so that's why it was downgraded to vulnerable, which is a great news, you know, yeah. really good news. But don't it's wanna, also funny, like how that. they dictate like what's considered endangered and what's considered vulnerable. When I think that the bar just gets set lower and lower because we're just losing more and more species, right? Like yeah. so many animals I know have lost like 80% of their population in just the last like 20 to 50 years. Yeah. And then I think that the whole scale gets put down when they're like, well, there's, yeah, just because the whole sample size of how many wildlife animals there are is lower than which ones yeah. are endangered and which ones are vulnerable gets. Yeah. Kind of and and from there. the Selenodon's point of view, none of nothing changes, right? The Selenodon had always been in those places. We just didn't know yeah. it. And the Selenodon is still being eaten by dogs and losing habitat. So nothing really materially changes for it. But we just changed the thing because we didn't realize it was in more spots. And the Cuban one's doing really poorly, right? Yeah, so I think the last time the Cuban one was spotted was 2003. That's what I've read most recently. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, there was a group that went out maybe a year or two ago um, to do some work on bats in Cuba and also to look for it, and I don't believe they found it. I'm not sure. They might have found some signs. Um, but, I, but yeah, the, that one is is really on the edge. You know, it's one of those things where if you had enough people going in and doing a big survey, maybe they'd find that the population, because it's in a particular national park in Cuba. Mm -hmm. Maybe they would find the population is, is doing better than they expected. Who knows? But on the flip side, you know, it might already be extinct. Right. Uh. 
one of the issues there is it's a smaller and it's smaller than the Hispaniola Solenodon, and it's there's mongoose that have been introduced into Cuba, um, which are also in Hispaniola as well, and that will Dude, prey those on are the Cuban vicious. Yeah, Guys, mongoose ugh. can be real. Yeah, and they're not you know they're not meant to be there, and these animals have lived for a long time without any mammalian predators, right? So Solenodons are not used to having mammals try and eat them. You know, and then all of a sudden you got cats, you got dogs, you got mongoose. And well, what's going to happen? You know, the population is going to take a hit and potentially extinction. You know, and part of my interest in the Slendodon is also that I, I love the underdog stories. I love the, the stories about these animals that I'd never heard of or didn't know much about. And the stories of these animals that where you have a passionate small group of scientists or conservationists that are dedicating their time to something that nobody knows about and no other group will touch because it doesn't have the 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 big, you know, rhino lion tiger kind of play that you can do with the media and make money you know right you can you can can get a lot more funding to save tigers than you're going to get to save solenodons and i think that's a sad travesty about the state of conservation but that's so i i try to promote species that don't get as much attention whenever whenever possible yeah it's funny because you almost need to find the sweet spot of anonymity and not becoming overly too popular. You know what I mean? Because yes, yes. There's, there's part of like just leaving them alone, which can be fantastic as long as their habitat or is not getting destroyed or there's some other like invasive species problem that you don't know about. But then you look at tigers or elephants or cheetahs and they're so popular that, yeah, they get the funding, but they're also getting chased down by 30 cars a day of people trying to yes. find them. But and then yeah, and I've I've been I've I've seen that experience myself when you know traveling in in places like Kenya and Botswana. You know it it there's a mixed there's a mixed blessing there. Um, but you also take and, it a step further, and you're like, well, the that also is ecotourism, which is fueling the ability to be able to keep those habitats in the first place. And then all of a sudden, you understand why conservation can get more and more complex. It's so complex, yeah. And I think that it it we almost drown in that complexity. But yeah, I think I think I think the the fame thing, you know, can can be a, a double edged sword. But the problem I think for a lot of these unknown species is that nobody, none of these species now are unaffected. You know, there's really nowhere you can go on Earth anymore where you could say humans aren't affecting a species, whether it's the deepest part of the ocean or whether it's Antarctica, you know, whether it's the rainforest. Like even if the habitat's there, even if the species is unknown. You know, and even if it's, you know, maybe a species that's relatively common in the particular area, mm-hmm. it's still being hammered by something. Right. Um, whether it's climate change, whether it's uh, overhunting, whether it's, you know, invasive species like dogs, cats, you know, um, mongoose. Uh, so I, I, I love to, you know, I mean, part of it's just my own curiosity, but I do love to try and shine a light on these species. It's, it's hard, though, because I'll write something about lions or elephants and that will get a lot more attention than if I write about the Slendodon or the Sumatran rhino or, um, you know, some deep sea fish or, you know, uh, even something like the vaquita, which is basically, you know, functionally almost extinct. You know, it doesn't get the same amount of attention. And editors are much less likely to want to do a story on something like that than they are a big, splashy animal that we've done stories and stories and stories on. Is the Sumatran rhino similar to the Indian rhino? So the Sumatran rhino is in its own genus. It is totally different from all the other rhinos. Interesting. Uh, in some ways, I feel like we should just come up with a new name for it. I mean, it is a rhino, but so the Sumatran rhino, it's uh, another one of these really bizarre and, and again, evolutionarily distinct species. There is nothing like it on Earth. It is hairy. It is the smallest rhino on Earth. 
Um, it's still large. It's still a huge animal, but it's much smaller than normal. Like what you think when you think of like Indian rhinos or African rhinos, you know, big, big land animals. Yeah. The Sumatran rhinos quite a bit significantly smaller. How hairy? Like, um, a, like fully hairy? So it it depends on the animal, but basically it's the the bottom half will often have kind of like long hair, and you don't you might not even really notice it unless you get it wet or muddy, mm-hmm. and then you'll see this huge frock of hair on the bottom half. It's most closely related to the woolly rhino, which we wiped out, and of course the woolly rhino was covered in hair. Um, it's also the most vocal of the rhinos, so it will sing to you. It sounds like a dolphin. Wow. It'll just, and it, it'll constantly chattering. Whenever I've been around these rhinos, they just come up to you. They like rub their head against you and they just chatter away and sing. Oh, that's cute. And they have various noses. Yeah. And, you know, this is a large, beautiful mammal that's one of the most endangered large mammals on the earth. And no one has ever really studied its song or its sounds. No one knows why it's doing this. No one knows. I mean, I've talked to people who spend their lives with the captive ones. And they have their theories about, oh, they will, you know, they'll tell me like, oh yeah, when it says, when it's singing this way, it means this, you know, it wants to, it wants hungry or it wants to go back in the forest or it wants to, me to rub its feet. You know, they'll have like literally, they, <laughs> but no scientists, I think there's been one short study on the sounds and I think there might be something, somebody working on it soon, but nobody has, and that, to me, that's crazy. You know, you have an animal that's making noises like a dolphin. That's a large animal. And no one's researched that. Like I know it's crazy. And one of the reasons we think that it makes these sounds is that the 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 rhino is lives in deep, dense forest in Indonesia. There's none in Malaysia anymore. It used to be in Malaysia. It used to be actually all the way into Myanmar, Laos, uh, Vietnam. They used to have a huge population uh, into even northern India before it got wiped out. So today it only survives in uh, Indonesia. But, you know, the reason they think it sings like this is that it's in this deep, dark forest, and that's a way of communicating to other rhinos perhaps far away. Um, It's a solitary animal, but they come together for mating. Um, And obviously for mothers and and calves, uh, the mother will raise the calf, I think, for a year to a year and a half or something. Say say the calf will stay for quite a while. And the mom and calf will, like, you know, call to each other all the time. So it's it's another one of those really amazing beautiful strange animals and i've been lucky enough to spend a lot of time with sumatran rhinos and write a incredible amount on sumatran rhinos and it's a fascinating story uh but it's another one of those animals that that kind of gets overlooked in the fact that it's just you know people know rhinos but they don't necessarily know the sumatran rhino i was in cincinnati recent cincinnati recently where they had the first sumatran rhino uh births in the zoo there in captivity oh, wow. in over 112 years. Yeah, they did this in 2001 was the first birth. And I'm doing a whole series right now on the history of this animal, the conservation history. And I was talking to someone who had, who, you know, spent, worked their entire career to save, to save the species. And she said, when people would see the species in the zoo, they would think it was just a large, like uh, pig. Like they wouldn't, they wouldn't know. And they just kind of look at it and walk by. You know, they wouldn't sit and really spend time with this animal, which I have flown to Indonesia and to Malaysia to spend time with this animal. Have you seen them in the wild? You know? No, nobody's seen them in the wild. The only thing that's ever, like, uh, it's crazy because you, so there was a researcher um, who wrote the the first real ecological treatise on this animal back in the 80s, uh, Nico Van Strien. He spent months in Sumatra. And from what I heard, he's passed away, but from what I heard from other people who knew him, they said he'd never seen one in the wild. I've talked to um, rangers who have seen the Javan rhino, which is in one park on Java, 
um, you know, maybe 30, 40 times, and they've seen the Sumatran rhino once. Is the Javan rhino similar to the Sumatran rhino? Like hairy? Uh, it's uh, No, it's so this Javan rhino is more closely related to the Indian rhino. That's so interesting. I think, wait, so how do they know it's not extinct? How do they, oh, the, well, so we know from camera traps okay. that there are a few left in the wild, but nobody, <laughs> despite decades of work on this animal, can tell you how many are left. Um, you would think if they're the, singing and they're, I mean, they're rhinos, they're, they're not as big as a normal rhino, but they're big animals but that they're they, big, wouldn't, yeah. they wouldn't be too hard to find. You would think, yeah. but they are in, so they spend almost all their time in wallows during the day. Um, so like they'll build a big wallow and then they'll just sit in it during the day, during the hot times. And then they'll come out at night and feed. Um, but the problem is, is we're talking about large areas of rainforest and we're talking about, you know, a large animal, but. The animal is so rare that it's just never seen anymore. And so the only way you can really find it is camera traps. Now, there's a lot of people who will say, well, you know, we can find footprints and we can find markings, but the footprints are easily confused for tapir. Mm -hmm. Tapir and, and Sumatran rhino can look quite similar. And, you know, if you spend a lot of time in a rainforest, rainforest isn't like the African savanna. You know, you can walk in a rainforest. You can spend weeks in a rainforest and not see a large mammal. I've never seen a jaguar for example, and I've been to the rainforest, you know, to the Amazon th three times and spent several weeks there. Um, I've seen a tapir once, but it was a, a tame tapir that the indigenous people hand raised. So it just <laughs> would come out and hang out at the, at the lab. Right. So th I've never seen a, a wild tapir, you know, and I've spent quite a bit of time on rivers on, you know, so you can, you can go through these areas and like not see any large mammals at all. And this is a very solitary animal. It's obviously learned, I think, throughout the last few thousand years to be scary very afraid of humans yeah and the other problem is that people assumed there was rhinos in areas where really there weren't no rhinos left the rhinos had had died off um you know they'd, they'd either been poached out or uh perhaps even more likely the population got so small that through inbreeding and through just not finding each other anymore uh the rhinos just vanished are they poached similarly for their horn yes okay yeah, and there was, there's even been, you know, in the last few years, there's been recent discoveries of Sumatran rhino horn in, in Indonesia. No way. Um, so they're, they're, they're probably within the still the last couple of decades have, but they're so rare now and so hard to find. It's even very difficult for poachers, but. Yeah, but that's fucked up. Know, Imagine that, like nobody's seen these yeah. things in 10 years. You finally see it. And I mean, there's a lot to, to unhash there. I'm not, I mean, there's a lot more that goes into it than just single people. There's a lot of, uh socioeconomical factors that make that a reality. Yes. So I'm not trying to downplay that either, but it's just sad. No, it, it is really sad. I mean, I, you know, I'd hear stories about, you know, these remote parks where, you know, park rangers, you, they only have so many park rangers and you can only, you know, look, but like all of a sudden you'll, they'll, they'll spot poachers in this insanely remote area that had probably must've spent, you know, a week or two weeks hiking, trying to find, you know, rhinos, tigers, uh, elephants, any kind of thing to, to kill basically and bring back to China Ugh. or Vietnam. What is the expected number of these rhinos out there? Like, do they have like a general idea? Sure. So there's, there's nine in captivity, um, including two relatively recent births in the last, I think six, five, six years. So that's the good news. <laughs> the, the official estimate is under a hundred, right? Officially. Wow. The, when I did a, I did a big series on this from series on this from Manga Bay, uh, which people can look at if they're interested in getting a lot more detail. 
when I looked at it, when I would talk to sit down and talk to researchers, I basically, one of the first things I'd ask is, okay, how many are in this park? How many are in this park? How many are in this park? And then I'd get these different responses. And basically what I ended up finding out was worst case scenario, we're talking about probably less than 30 animals, maybe around 30 animals. Now that's worst case scenario. I'm not saying there's only 30 animals. Yeah. I would say we're probably looking somewhere between more like between 50 and 80 or 40 and 60, but I don't but know. But that's collectively, right? Like that's... That's collectively and that's in four different sites. So, that so is that even possible for them to survive without interbreeding to get to like a sustainable no. level? So I would say, first of all, in, in, in one site, there's probably between maybe one or two maybe up to a dozen, but I think that that dozen is really a, a, a red herring. I don't think there is. They, they don't have any proof of the dozen. They're just guessing, yeah. which is what people have been doing with this animal for, for, for a century, and it doesn't work. We have proof of one or two left. And another site, it's between zero to 10 to 15. And again, no one has any, no one has any photographic proof. What they have is they have footprints and, and twisted branches and wallows, which could all be other things. When does it get um, to a level that they're saying, okay, this is going to go extinct unless we intervene and take them all out and do some crazy breeding process? That's what's, that's what's, that's what's the talk is right now. Okay. So you've had a few scientists saying that for, for a decade. Like basically we need to get all the Sumatran rhinos out. We need to breed them like crazy. But the breeding program had been going so horribly for so long. The rhinos were just dying and no one was getting babies. Uh, that, that was like, don't go there. And now it's completely changed. And now all of a sudden we have scientists basically saying, okay, we need to get more and more animals into the breeding program. Well, there was a big um, issue, right? With the, wasn't there one that was tried to be captured and, and died? Yes. So the most recent capture, a uh, female named Najak, she died about, I think about less than a week after she was caught. And there was a lot that went wrong with that capture. Um, this was, I'm going to be writing about. How long ago was this? Sorry. This was, uh, let me just look up real quick, uh, just so I get the date right, because I don't want to get, 2016. Okay. So, she was captured, a lot went wrong with the capture, she had a snare wound, and I'm going to be writing about this in a new series coming out in Manga Bay, so I'm not going to give too much into this, but she had a snare wound and she perished. Um, there's more to the story than that, I don't want to get into it here right now, because I feel like that'd be a little bit... Uh, I've done other research. Um, and I feel like I want to let the sources that I talk to speak to what actually happened. Is that so, just not to pry, but is that sure. like, um, not malevolent, but like, um, not proper care, like almost like, like um, it's like a I, bad I, thing or it's just complications. I don't want to, I don't want to I don't wanna go. I think I, I will say things went wrong I, I, to, 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 to understand the complexity here. Uh, it's incredibly difficult to catch a large animal like that in the wild. In the rainforest, too. Uh, in the rainforest. They have to wait months in remote... I mean, the only reason the animal is still there is because it's so remote, very few people have, you know, are in that area. Uh, they have to wait months, and then they have to try and catch it. Most of these animals in these areas are older. Sometimes they're sick. They often haven't been breeding. Sometimes they have cancer. And, and in the past, there has been a number of fatalities at the catch site. It's hard to catch a large animal like that. Uh, so we're talking about something that's incredibly risky to begin with. I will say that given all that, still stuff went wrong and things are not done right. But again, you're talking about a really difficult situation. People have to make calls. They have to make decisions. They have to try and do what's best. You know, shit happens. Well, 
Um, any conservationist or field scientist knows how that goes. It's just that doesn't mean that 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 we can't fix things for next time. Yeah, it's just interesting to think how complicated this can be, or or more just how gray and convoluted this can be when you have a population of animals that you don't know how many there are. Likely, mm-hmm. there's too few that they almost have to be captured to be bred mm-hmm. and put in with a stable population. But actually capturing them is so difficult that, yep. I mean, the, the press that the WWF got from that exposure almost makes people be like, don't touch them. But then if you don't touch yeah, them, like it, they likely could go extinct. And I'm, I hate hearing about those, those scenarios where animals are brought in and had to be bred and they yes. brought back out because you always feel like, you're losing a bit of the authenticness of the the wild animal sure. themselves, but I don't know. It's just such a, it's such an interesting when you factor in all those different variables. It's such an interesting, yeah. Like, yeah, it is. And we're talking also. I mean, I, I should be clear here too that this was an animal that was living basically by herself. Maybe one other rhino in the area, also a female. So she doesn't have any chance to mate. Right. She's never. She would never have reproduced. Probably. I mean, I, I can't say that. Probably 100 percent sure, but I don't think WWF has any evidence of another male in the a male in the area. So you know, you either catch her for breeding purposes, hopefully, or you leave her there to die um, and not and not ever breed. Now, maybe you know, she probably maybe could have lived longer in the wild. I don't know. But that was that was the situation, and that's and, and so. There are two populations of this animal, one in Wayne, Wayne Canvas National Park, which is where the sanctuary is that I visited, and also in Lucer, that may or may not be viable. Uh, there's potential there that these populations could be large enough that if well protected, they could start to rebound. But we don't know. We really don't know. And no one could tell me with any surety, or no one could show me. Some people would tell me, oh yeah, no, we have enough animals here, but they don't have the camera traps to prove it. Um, and we've learned in the past that if you don't, if you don't actually have the phys- you know, really good physical evidence, it's, it's, you know, we, when I first met my first Sumatran rhino, they kept saying there was 40 Sumatran rhinos in Borneo in Sabah, where I met this rhino. This is Malaysian Borneo. Turned out there was zero, you know, or maybe, no, I shouldn't say zero. There was probably two or three. So the Sumatran rhino is gone from Borneo from not from Borneo. Sorry. From, from Sabah. Okay. It's extinct in Sabah, this particular area. Uh, they thought it was gone from Borneo entirely until WWF discovered this 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 population that that where Najak was from. Um, she was from a population in Kalimantan in Indonesian Borneo. It gets very confusing because of all the different places. Well, I also think um, from a layperson's perspective, the confusing part of it is is the when the name of the animal is assigned to a geographic location, yes. like the Sumatran rhino yeah. or the Sumatran tiger or whatever that people yeah. almost when you hear they're going extinct people are like oh well they're just talking about this small subsegment of an animal that's everywhere that yeah. is going extinct yeah. on this one small little island not that they're trivializing it but it doesn't seem like it doesn't feel yeah. like you're actually losing a species but the reality is is it's a completely different species and it's not only found in just this one yeah. geographic location but you're losing something huge and and I yeah. un- unfortunately and- I think just the way that it's been named uh, confuses yeah. people to that. The way we name animals in general has always driven me crazy. Um, the it should be called like the hairy rhino or the little rhino or the pygmy rhino. Like yeah. that would get it so much more attention, right? If you called this the hairy rhino or the pygmy rhino, and people were like, oh, it's so cute, you know. But because of yeah, you're totally right. And the thing is, we named it the Sumatran rhino because it was found on Sumatra when the scientists, you know, the Western scientists came and said, oh, look, it's a rhino. Right. But 
you know, a few thousand years before, you know, they were in Myanmar. They were in India. This is not a, this is not the Sumatran rhino. This is an Asian rhino that belongs to its entirely own genus, you know? And so that does, and it gets, it gets very confusing when you're trying to explain all of those different things. And it, you know, it, it's an, it's like the Selenodon. It's an animal that requires context to get people interested. Yeah. Right. You have to be like, no, 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 wait a second. It's hairy. It sings to you. It's the most sweet. It's like a giant cat. It'll rub its head against you. You know, like this is a crazy species. Yeah. And yet most people maybe have heard of it, but don't know any of the context, including Indonesians. You know, Indonesians know all about the tiger. They know about the tiger. They know about elephants. But you talk to them about the Sumatran rhino and most of them are not really going to know why it's important and why what makes it different from, uh, you know, the white rhino. Now. Right. I talk to photographers about this all the time, about how do you strike that balance of there's so many awful images that you can put out that are doom and gloom and like we're losing these species and you want people to care. But at the end of the day, you almost need to educate people in the first place to get them to give a shit. You know what I mean? Like, yes. like to me, like one, you need to be educated that a rhino, the Sumatran rhino is not just an Indian rhino that lives in Sumatra, but also that yeah. it does sing and it does nuzzle against you. And it is this really cute and unique animal. And then, oh, by the way, there's potentially 30 left in the world and then yeah. people care, you know what I mean? But finding yeah. that balance and, and the timing of delivering that message is so complicated. Yes, it is. It is really complicated and it's really hard and it's really hard. You know, as a journalist, I think journalists, all, all journalists dealing with this is trying to get your story to matter trying to get your story because most of the time you're throwing your story into the ether of the internet and you just hope somebody <laughs> reads it and cares and does something you know uh it, that's kind of our job right and how you know when you're when you're an environmental journalist it's even more because few very few people read the environmental news and the ones that do usually already care um so how do you reach an audience that's bigger that's different. And, you know, I've, I've tried every way in the book, I think, and I don't think I've, I've found a way that's successful in the sense of like, it reaches everybody, you know, different messages work on different people, I think, but it's, it's incredibly daunting to get people to, to care when we have all these other things going on. Um, and we're so distracted and there's so much news to break through that and get people to, to, to read something about a Solanodon, for example, or, um, uh, the Sumatran rhino is, is really a challenge. Yeah. And that, that's why I gravitate towards podcasts in the first place. Uh, I think I mentioned this to you in a, in a previous chat that we had, but it's the one form of media that consistently, assuming you're going to the right places, not the one form of media, because I mean, writing mm -hmm. and everything, et cetera, but long format in general is it's found in podcasts and they actually get into stories and talk about things and mm -hmm. you hear different perspectives and you get granular details and you have long form conversations and if it's debated, it's debated in a sophisticated way where people are actually having a discussion around things as opposed to a lot of media, which has gradually shifted to these sensationalized headlines and everybody wants to be the first to put it out. So there's like two paragraphs and it's all super extremist or extremist examples because that's the only thing people will click on. And then all of a sudden you're like, I don't really know if I understand the story whatsoever. Yeah. And so that's why I'm We're, always listening to to podcasts because I feel like it's the one method I have also because I really don't like reading for 45 minutes at a time <laughs> because sure. I'm usually doing it while I'm at the gym or something like that, that I feel like I can actually understand a story in its entirety, mm -hmm. you know? And I think that yeah. that's what I really respect a lot of, about your work too, is I mean, if you read your Selenodon story, if you read... Uh, the new project you're coming out with that we can talk about in a little bit. 
Mm-hmm. They're long form. I mean, they're 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 yes. long articles that give different perspectives, provide examples, and it's interesting. You know what I mean? And I think yeah. in this current day and age, it's really hard to find that. It's really hard to find, and it's really hard to. The, the problem is, it's not even just our attention spans. It's it's so hard to fund it, right? To fund journalists to be able to spend a long time on a story, to be able to do the research, to be able to talk to more than two sources, to fund them to be able to do that for a story that might only get you know however many clicks. That's that's where the the, the breakdown has come in in journalism today. Is is trying to fund these really good long contextual stories. And I think I think to me the most powerful stories are the ones where the journalist is actually there. Yeah, you know the journalist can put you in a place. You know they've actually gone and visited someplace physically, and those are even more hard to fund because then you're talking about travel costs. Yeah. But those are the kind of things that I personally love to write, and those are the things I. I mean, I'm I got into this. I, I started out as an English major, and I went. I got a master's in what's called the Great Books program. So I'm a book reader. Like I love long, and the longer the book, the better. Right. I'm a huge fan of 19th century you know, novels that just go on and on and on. So when Harry I Potter write guy myself, <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, those can get quite long yeah, too. That's true. You know, seven. Those, those, I mean, JK Rowling loved to love to, you know, draw that on. And, and, and in a way that was blissful, she created that whole world. Right. And that's what I love. I love being immersed in a world like that. So when I, when I, when I write at editors, bless them, deal with me, always sending more than I should. Mm-hmm. You know, they'll be like, here's your word count. And then I'll send them double that. <laughs> I'll be like, I'm sorry. Can, can you edit I just this? want you to look at what I have. And yeah, can we edit, you know, or, or can we just keep a little? And the nice thing about the internet, honestly, is, is you're not competing for space anymore. It's not like a, a sheet of paper, you know, a newspaper where you're competing with. You actually have to really be concerned about, you know, what you're competing for is attention span. Right. And you're competing for the willingness for someone to, and I, I'm as guilty of this as anyone else, to read past the two paragraphs you know, the first two paragraphs and to actually read the full article. <clears throat> but those are the kind of things that we read or listen to. I agree about podcasts is the same thing um, that, that really stick with us. You know, reading the first two paragraphs, reading the headline, you know, yes, you're going to get the basics of the news. And sometimes you have to do that. But I think we're bombarded with too much information, with too much news, way more than is healthy for us. And at the same time, we're u- losing the ability to listen to long stories. You know, our ancestors used to sit around the fire and you'd have a storyteller, you know, in ancient Greece, you'd have Homer tell you a story for two hours. Yeah. Yeah. Through poetry. Well, it's changed, right? That, like where we've gone from living in a world where we had to be sponges to living in a world that we have to be filters. I mean, I think yeah, for, yeah. for me, like my news intake is, it's not that I don't have enough intake. It's I have to filter out what's bullshit. I need to have enough yes. time to read through all of it. It's it's just the entire way in which you consume information and be and learn has changed. Yes, and that the the filtering out process used to be the that used to be the purview and the job of journalists and editors. You know, the whole point of journalists and editors is to try and speak truth to power and to find context and to tell a good story, but do it in a way that's like getting to the nuggets of truth, right? right. And now we have because of the internet, uh, because of this tool we've created. All of a sudden, you you we're asking the reader to try and filter out all the BS, and, <laughs> right. and you see that on social media all the time. I mean, I have people, you know, on social media will ask, "Well, is this story true or not?" And you'd be like, "No, no, that's complete. You know, that's completely made up." Like, but they have to do the work. They have to go and ask, and that's not that's too much to ask of most people, right? Most people are going to get overwhelmed, or they're just going to believe whatever news site they think is most in line with their views. 
Um, you know, and they're not gonna, they're, it's too much to ask. So we used to have this place for journalists where like journalists would go and kind of do that work for you behind the scenes. Cause that's a lot of what we do is behind the scenes. We're doing that contextualizing work. We're doing that dealing with these complex issues and then trying to put it in words and, and then delivering something that is at least, you know, at least gives you the context, gives you some kind of truth, gives you some kind of reality. And now because of the way our, our internet is, and that's bled into our politics, you know, we're, we're making you all do it. And that's, that's a terrible way to run a society. Yeah. And you used to, uh, you'd gravitate towards people that you, there was like a level of trust with the journalist that, that covered these stories. You'd say, okay, well, I've been reading so-and-so, this guy, this woman for 20 years. And I respect the way in which they do their job. And I trust them as a way to take in that information. Exactly. And you respect that they're going to have a certain amount of independence of independent observers, but you also respect that they're human who's going to have views right? and you might disagree with your views and that's fine. I mean, journalists like we're, we're, it's weird because we're asked to be, you know, independent observers and everything has to be this bullshit balance, which is totally a fake thing, but we're human, you know, we're, we're just doing our job and we're doing it to the best of our ability. And yes, we're trained in certain methods in which to tell, you know, a story with as much context and truth as possible, but we make mistakes. We are still human. We are still dealing with our own uh, maybe uh, issues. I mean, if you look at journalism, you know, a hundred years ago, you know, you know, it's virulently racist. Yeah, <laughs> you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, like yeah. the the what what is happening in society bleeds into into journalism too. We 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 aren't perfect. We're not you know, but yet we have always played a kind of role in giving news in a way that allowed people to get more context and to make up their own mind about certain realities. And now we're unfortunately asking people to figure that out themselves. And it's just, that's not sustainable, I don't think. And I think we're seeing the repercussions of that in our world right now of of asking people to try and filter out what's real and what's not. Yeah, and bringing that full circle, I think, because I still have a lot of questions on the Sumatran rhino, <laughs> is that yeah. uh, I think this animal has, one, been largely confused as to what it actually is and yep. what the how dire the circumstance is to actually lose an animal like this. But also it's just a really interesting story. So what's the what is the efforts going on now? Is there like a new idea? Is there like a collaborative effort to show direction? Yeah, going I mean there's in? there's a collaborative effort of a of a bunch of different researchers and organizations and groups and including the Indonesian government basically to try and, and, and find out what to, to try and do. So I did a big series on this last year, and the point of that series was basically, look, we we only have nine rhinos in captivity. Only two of them are known breeders. Um, all the males but one are related, so they're brother, son, and father. Mm-hmm. Um, and we only have one female that we know can actually give <laughs> can actually breed. Uh, so the point of sort of what my you know talking to lots of researchers, talking to government people sitting down with people across the table in Indonesia. I spent two weeks in Indonesia researching this and, and a lot of other, a lot of other, uh, also other time doing Skype calls and other things. Uh, the kind of the conclusion we came down to was we need to get more rhinos out of the wild. You know, we need to look at these areas where the rhinos are basically doomed, uh, where there may be only a few handful left. And then we also need to consider about taking a few rhinos out of places like Ray Canvas and Lucer, where the population may be somewhat stronger, but we really need young, healthy females we need new genetics. We now know how to breed the rhinos, which we didn't. It took us 20 years to figure that out. But we now know how to do it. So we need to get a few more rhinos out of the wild at least and start breeding. 
Uh, last I heard, I believe that there is a coalition working on moving forward on this. The problem with all this is it moves too slow. Uh, the government bureaucracy is really uh, can be really frustrating in Indonesia. Uh, and so one of the points of the stories is to really try and get the Indonesian government to sign off on this. Well, it's a big, de- it's, it's a, a big decision. Thing. Like who makes that, it's a huge who makes decision. that decision? It's, it is the government. Uh, like It's the government. Like, this is like so a, the government, that's what's in, so messed up, right? Is it not messed up, but like so interesting is that this is a species that I don't want to say belongs to the world because I don't think that they belong to anybody, but it's, yeah. it's the only animals left of this entire species of animals. And it, ultimately yeah. comes down to a few individuals to like sign off on yeah. what happens to it is a really yes. weird concept. It is weird. And it officially in, in, in Indonesia, the Sumatran rhinos are owned by the government. The government officially owns all these rhinos, right? Whether they're captive or wild. Um, it's a part of the government's, you know, role, uh, as a representative of the people. Mm-hmm. So the government is the ones that make the final decision. So the NGOs basically uh, provide an advisory expertise role, but they're not going to be able to say, hey, we're going to go take these rhinos out without permission from the government. Right. And then you're asking the government to make a risky, I mean, you saw that with Najak, right? The rhino that died. Yeah. You're asking them to, to put their step out and make a risky decision, which is not easy <laughs> to do this. So that's one reason why this has stalled for so long and why there's been other, other parts of this story that are even more in some ways infuriating and frustrating have stalled. Because the government is not wanting to, to, to put itself out there and to make these hard decisions. Um, you know, uh, and the government itself is made up of a hierarchy of various different officials, many of whom <laughs> don't return my calls. Right. You know, they don't want to talk to journalists. They don't want the... And, but they're under a lot of pressure, and I understand. And, and there's some cultural differences in Indonesia than in places like America that, that make it very different. So, but I, uh, from last I heard, there's some that sounds like there's some movement on uh, capturing some more rhinos, getting them into captivity. Hopefully, hopefully, dear God, we will have some more breeding success. Um, I've met with the team. I've met numbers of the team who work with these rhinos on a day-to-day basis. And these are amazing people who have dedicated their lives to living in, to coming out to this remote area, leaving their family behind for weeks at a time, Mm -hmm. living in this remote area where the rhinos are kept because they're kept inside the national park in a sanctuary. And basically doing everything they can to breed these animals. Um, and they've had two successful births now there. And they do amazing work. And they're using all their science. They're using all their knowledge. Um, so the, the resources are there. The people are there. What we need is a few more rhinos at least to get us started. And I think on the flip side, we need to really find out how many rhinos are in Lucer, how many rhinos are in Wake Canvas. I, I, I'm constantly amazed that we don't have that very i mean we know exactly to a number how many javan rhinos there are right right javan rhinos survive in one population in ujan kulan we know the exact number they do a survey every year or every few not every year maybe but every three or four years they have a survey and they can count the exact number on camera traps i don't understand why we can't i mean i know that's it's different terrain it's more remote it's other other issues but but it's important it boggles yeah. my mind it's important that we don't have that yeah and I, i'm yeah. gonna also, just before I forget, for people listening, I'm going to link in the show notes Paul Hilton's work in the Lucerne ecosystem. And it is, for people who don't know, one of the most beautiful places in the world. And it's the only last living place where rhinos, tigers, and orangutans all, and, and elephants. elephants. Thank you. Yeah, I knew I forgot a big one. And elephants yeah, all, the big four. all live together in harmony. Am I yeah. right about the tiger? 
the Tigers there too. Yeah, the Tigers there. Yeah. And I think I I believe they have wait, do they? Let me see. Um I think they have Tapir too. So you could say the big Asian five. Yeah, are all living together in harmony and it's it's an under incredible stress, mostly from palm oil from surprisingly very large American corporations that should not be doing that. But Paul Hilton does a lot of really important work in that area. And I'm going to link it so people can support and learn more if they want to. Um, yeah. And there's a lot of uh, interesting issues. There's, there's been development projects that have been planned for that area, large scale roads and things that have that. So there is, it's one of the most, it's probably arguably the most important area in Sumatra right now. And Sumatra as an Island is got one has one of the highest deforestation rates in the world. Um, it is uh, ecologically under complete distress right now. Uh, it's a beautiful place, but it's hard to go to because you see all the destruction. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, though, it has millions of people that it needs to feed, clothe, provide education for, housing. You know, these people deserve a good life. So it's really it's one of those really difficult issues to try and figure out the balance. But uh, it's a beautiful country or a beautiful island, I should say. Uh, Indonesia itself is quite amazing. Yeah, I think in general, it's really hard to take just strictly a Western perspective and understand what the intricacies of the actual grassroots level uh, situation is. But I heard a really interesting story in Borneo where there's a lot of palm oil deforestation that are hurting the orangutans that when they went into the communities, there was a lot, basically everyone was wondering why they were going down and chopping down. It was either for palm oil or for charcoal and deforesting. Mm -hmm. And they're like, well, there's no access to healthcare for a lot of the people in the, in Borneo and something to the fact that like, if you broke your arm, you could likely die just from the infection because you just didn't have a way to take care of it. So Mm -hmm. an NGO went in and said, okay, for this community here, that's been known to be doing a lot of logging and deforestation, we're going to provide free healthcare to everybody here. But if one tree comes down or if we hear anything getting impacted, then everybody loses it. And all of a sudden, yeah. it, the the rebound and like the the ability for that community to stop deforesting, but still get what they need, is, is really really interesting. So I think, I th- like I I encourage like a lot of conservation to start thinking through those creative solutions, and also not just like blanket state statement things. Like people don't generally just have apathy to wildlife in these in these areas. It's that they're in in tough oh, yeah. situations, you know. Well, and I, and I think, if I just want to get the name out, but I think the group you're talking about is Health and Harmony mm. in Borneo. I think that's what they're called. Um, they do incredible work. Super interesting. Um, yeah, and that is a really innovative way. And the other thing that people need to know is, like, it's not like all these communities are pro, like, hey, let's go cut down all the forest and turn it into palm oil. A lot of the communities are dead set against it. And some of the communities are split, you know. And and so, uh, and the reason why they would be dead set against it is, is oftentimes the communities aren't getting much benefit, right? The the big corporation comes in, they do a large monoculture, the palm oil goes out, and uh, working for palm oil is, uh, as a laborer, is incredibly difficult. Mm-hmm. It doesn't pay well. Uh, you're using lots of pesticides. Uh, there's been a lot of labor violations. It's a really, really horrible job. Uh, the one place where palm oil has been really good for the economy in places like uh, Malaysia and Indonesia is for small holders, small farmers, basically, can grow it on their land. You know, and that's one area where it has been a real boon. But when these large-scale companies come in, cut down all the forests that people have been using, hunting in, fishing in, collecting, uh, you know, materials in for centuries, and all of a sudden they lose all their forest and their wildlife and their hunting. 
boom. You know, uh, yeah. a lot of these, a lot of these places, they've they've kind of woken up in a lot of places, and they realize we don't want this kind of development, right? We don't want this kind of, we want smarter development. We don't, we want development that takes in our considerations, like healthcare. Yeah, well, it's it's almost right? like in a weird way, some of these corporations are essentially similar to the people running poaching rings in Africa, right? They're, oh, except yeah. they're just in a suit and tie and and, and yep. buttoned up with the government. So, I mean, in a certain scenario when you think of the uh the ways in which they're devastating certain environmental areas but using people who are in really desperate situations to do that Mm -hmm. and giving them pennies on the dollar and then really reaping Mm -hmm. the benefits like i always thought of like being a poacher in africa like it's easy to think oh my god who could do that it's awful and it is but I also know that if I was struggling to feed my family, like all of a sudden you yes. might ha- have to make some tough decisions. But the person yeah. who actually is ultimately pulling that trigger in Africa is not the person who's seeing the most money from that. And I think it's no, very no, similar in what's going on in palm oil in Indonesia. Yes. Um, I'm going on a rant. Let's. <laughs> but, no, no, I, that's fine. But I, I think it's important for people, again, this is the complexity, right? In the context is the money tends to flow to the top and and the people on the ground, you know, everyone's yelling about palm oil, but I've, I've actually been there. I've seen it. It is decimating. Uh, but it, it it's not serving local people's needs in a lot of ways, but it is it is changing the economy. It's it's shaping, you know, it's it's creating. And the reason why the governments are often behind it is because, again, they're they're getting support from these companies they're getting paid sometimes from these companies they're getting you know mm-hmm. and so the, there's corruption involved and so it's not in a black and white story and you know to your point about poachers or about people who would you know you know who, who could do that well you know imagine your 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 little sister is sick and the only way you're going to be able to afford medicine is to go and shoot a rhino right you know to save her life like these are the kind of stories that people have to live with on a day-to-day 100%. basis and i think we as westerners and as conservationists like oh my god i can't no, 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 no. And, and the, the real villains in this are not those people. The real villains are the people at the top who are making a mint off this stuff and who are breaking so many laws and just exploiting so everybody. much corruption. Yeah. yeah. And they're not just, you know, often and often the people at the top aren't just, it's not just poaching. They're often involved in drugs. They're often involved in sex trafficking. They're often involved in illegal logging, which can be just as brutal and just as deadly sure. as poaching. Um, so it, that's that's where the systematic kind of trouble comes in, and I think blaming the poacher is is often the wrong. That it's it's not understanding the reality of the situation. Yeah, and the last thing I wanted to mention on the Sumatran rhino before we move on is it, it really uh, resonated a lot with me. My favorite director in the entire world, and I can never pronounce his last name right, is Louis Sai Hos or the guy who did the Cove and Racing Extinction. Oh, sure, um, sure. Yeah. He's just an absolute rock star. He has a new documentary on veganism coming out uh, pretty soon, too, which I heard is really interesting. Um, okay. I'm not a vegan, but maybe I will be after I watch that documentary. But uh, <laughs> right. Right. the. He'll convince us all. Uh, but he says, and he kind of gets emotional because he's one of the characters in Racing Extinction. And he talks about how when he was involved in conservation and environmental journalism, there was the Chinese river dolphin, which there was like 30 left in the world. And he just kept thinking to himself in the back of his mind that, oh, somebody will take care of it because yeah. there's only 30 left and now it's completely yeah. extinct and wiped from the world. And like yeah, he, he like breaks down in the, in the documentary and it, I think it's very, you can draw a lot of parallels to the Sumatran rhino and the fact that somebody's yes. got to step in and do something. And 
the first article I actually the the first article I ever wrote was about the Baji, the Yangtze River oh, really? that went extinct. Same thing. Yeah, that was a uh, and I think that that was maybe an awakening for a, a number of people in that yeah, you think someone will do something. And we're seeing that right now with the Vikita, right? You got a dozen left, 12 left. Pretty much ensured extinction. What's the Vikita? And so the Vikita is this small porpoise uh lives in the Gulf of Mexico. Um it's the, I think it's I don't want to get this wrong. I think it might be the world's smallest porpoise, but I'm probably wrong. Let me look that up quick. Um, so it is, it's the most rare mammal really, in the, one of the most rare mammals in the world. Uh, and it's threatened because of the gill netting that's being done in this region for a fish called the totoboa. Mm-hmm. And the totoboa has a certain part of it that's a Chinese uh, medicinal delicacy, right? So again, you have these gains that are going in, fishing to beat hell. Uh, and this has been happening over decades. The population of the Vikita, we've been watching it go down, 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 down. Um, and it's a beautiful little porpoise. It has like a, it, it's kind of, it's sometimes called a panda porpoise because it has a ring around its eye. Um, and basically the Vikita gets caught up in these nets and drowns, right? Um, and it's only, unlike most, you know, most marine mammals, they move, they migrate, or they're found in different places. The Vikita is literally only found in this one place and doesn't migrate. Okay. So it's vanishing. And, you know, the part of the story that no one really talks about is the Totoboa is also vanishing. And I might be saying that wrong as well, the Totoboa. I don't know if that's exactly how you pronounce it. Um, but we're losing this species, and we keep thinking someone's going to do something. And uh, I think it was last year or maybe two. Well, I think it was last year. Um, they tried to capture a couple for captive breeding because, you know, they're down yeah. to And uh, one got overly stressed, so they let it go, and then another one died. Ugh. And then they said, they said, we're stopping this. We're not going to catch anymore. But that means there's really nothing left. Um, and unless something changes real fast, the species is gone. Yeah, and I think it's also like important to point to things where captive breeding has worked. I mean, the California condor oh, is yeah. a great example uh, where I think there were like, I'm, this is an educated guess, but like less than 30 left in the world. Mm-hmm. And they brought them in. And got a captive breeding program going, and now they're killing it. They're doing really well. All, yeah. I mean, I I camped out in Ojai a f- couple months ago, and I just saw one like taking off, and it was beautiful. Oh, wow. And yeah, you look up in the in the wild. Oh yeah, you, you look up in the sky, and awesome. you see six of them flying around at a time. Like they're, it's oh. not that they're rare to see anymore. It's awesome. And I also have a rule on this podcast that I will not allow myself to get too negative for like a, a period of 30 times because in sure. 30 minutes, because in conservation, it's uh, easy to go down the rabbit hole in that sense. So I want to switch gears and talk a little bit about like, what are you optimistic about in conservation right now? Like, is there any programs sure. or ideologies or just progression that you're excited about? Wow. Um, well, let me just jump. I want to, I, I want to, Something that's optimistic, I yeah. think, and I think something that doesn't get enough credit because I'm doing this whole story in Sumatran rhinos, is you know the zoo world gets a lot of criticism, and I think a lot of it is somewhat warranted. But you have some of the best zoos in the world, like with the California condor. Zoos were hugely involved in that. Um, the Cincinnati Zoo basically is the only reason why we have Sumatran rhinos breeding anymore because mm-hmm. they cracked that nut and they spent years doing it. Um, you know, so you have these animals that we have seen come back, right? Um, that we have seen. So I think, I think people often dismiss captive breeding as a, as, as, as a, as a problem bringing animals in captivity. And I agree, like, that's not my first thought either. 
But when you get animals down to like the lion, tamarin, the California condor, the black-footed ferret, um, the European bison was down to 12 animals and only through zoos and captive breeding was it successfully. And now I think there's 400 in Europe and I've seen them in Poland, you know. So you have these stories, I think, where if you can get some really good dedicated conservationists together, you can save, you know, these animals uh, that are on the brink of extinction. And it doesn't always mean captive breeding. I'm not, I'm not advocating that. Right. I think the Komodo dragon is a really good story where, like, you protect the habitat, you turn it into a tourist mecca, and all of a sudden the Komodo dragon is, you know, it's not doing perfect, but we're not going to lose it anytime yeah. soon. Yeah. And that's an animal that could have easily been wiped Same thing out. with the American bison. Like the bison, like right? you go to Yellowstone and you're like, these things used to be struggling. They're everywhere. And it's like, I mean, yeah. it's all the same thing. You just go down, drive down the main drag in Jackson Hole and you'll see them all over the place. Or or you look at bald eagles in America mm-hmm. now, right? You know, to the very edge of extinction. They're everywhere. Um, I heard an interesting story DDT. that I don't know if it's true, but did you know, I think it was Ben Franklin was very against using the bald eagle as... America's uh I think mascot. I've heard that yeah, yeah because I guess he wanted the turkey didn't yeah he? and he, he said that the the bald eagle is naturally an animal that scavenges off of other people's kills and like <laughs> that is just like not a good demonstration of like strength and nobility oh that's yeah, funny that interesting yeah it's probably true too you know um but like so I live in Minnesota and one one thing I found out recently is like the turkey almost went extinct in Minnesota the wild turkey and now I drive my daughter to school and we see wild turkeys running, you know, so there, I think everybody got the positives. fact that you live in Minnesota based off of the way you got this celadon in a bag. <laughs> <laughs> in a bag, in a bag, right. Yeah. Right. See, and we can't even hear it sometimes. Um, but there are these positive stories. I, I think the, the problem that we're running into, and this might get slightly depressing for a moment, but is we have 7 billion plus people. We're on the road to between nine and 11 billion. Um, we have climate change, we have ocean acidification, we have mass deforestation, we have a massive wildlife trade. You know, there are so many things right now. We have the use, the overuse of pesticides and herbicides. We have insect populations now seemingly collapsing. There are so many things that are so large scale that I think our response as conservationists has to be more ambitious. It has to be more hopeful, yes, but it has to be bigger than what we've been doing. Um, one of the ideas that I find very intriguing, and I also think is, on the one hand, I'm like, this is absolutely crazy. But on the other hand, I'm like, this is amazing. Uh, because it is so ambitious, is uh, E.O. Wilson's uh, Half-Earth Initiative. Hell yeah. So E.O. Wilson, uh, if, for people that don't know, is one of the greatest living scientists. Uh, I got the chance to actually do a phone interview with him a couple of years ago, which was one of the highlights of my career. Um, he's an incredible evolutionary scientist. He's obsessed with ants as his big specialty, but basically insects. But he has come out with this idea of setting aside half of the earth, uh, as conservation areas. Uh, basically the idea is if you set aside half of the earth, I think the extinction rate would be 10 to 20% as opposed to a third of the earth and the extinction rate jumps up to like 50 or 60%. As oh, interesting. We cannot, we cannot afford And this is, this is this whole thing that he developed with another researcher on how much habitat you need to preserve species, right? How much habitat can a species lose before you start to, what kind, how, many, how much biodiversity will be lost when you lose a certain amount of habitat? Um, we cannot afford to lose 50 to 60% of our species because then we're talking about, you know, not just ecological, well, we're talking about ecological collapse, which is really a collapse in our own civilization. 
So his idea is to set aside 50%, um, both on land and on sea. The, the reason why this is absolutely mind-bogglingly ambitious is, of course, where the hell, like, where, where are you going to find 50%, yeah. right? Like, how Does that are include the ocean? Actually, uh, I think it would be separate. So I think you do 50% in the oceans, or I'd say maybe more in the oceans. Why not? Yeah. We could. And you do 50% on land. Okay. But he, he talks specifically about 50% on land. Um, okay. Yeah, that yeah, gets harder. It's ambitious. It is. It's crazy. Uh, you know, and you start to crunch the numbers and we have about, I think over 50% of the land that is undeveloped about now. Um, there are certain countries, uh, Colum- is it Colombia or Venezuela? Uh, anyway, there are a few different countries that have over 50% of their land protected. That's awesome. But they're not, it's not the rich countries. It's poorer countries. You know, I think Bhutan has like 37%. You know, Bhutan, like it, these are smaller countries that have done more for conservation than sort of the U.S. and, you know, France and other places. Well, the cool thing, too, is um, I actually heard you always associate China with the endangered species trade. And there's obviously a lot of negativity when it comes to conservation for China. But apparently they're really becoming very progressive at putting land aside strictly for yeah. altruistic purposes, not necessarily like economical benefits for sure. um for wildlife which is really cool yeah yeah and china you know i mean uh, uh, you can we can say a lot we can bash china till the cows for sure home. um but uh, uh if we're gonna survive climate change china's probably our our biggest yeah, asset right yeah. now um so you got to give them props on that well, they've seen the, the uh, so, downside of things. This is another thing I heard that they know how bad smog has gotten in that area. And yes, that yeah. continuing on the path that they're continuing on is not going to work. Um, yes, they know they know it's on. They've they've come to the realization that this is unsustainable. Um, and so they making they're making a hard U-turn, yeah. you know, which is way more than the U.S. is doing right now than the U.S. has ever no, done. The U.S. And is way re- more than regressing. Doing. I mean, we're we're giving yes. away we're giving away areas <laughs> of land to do coal mining and stuff that nobody's yep. used since like the forties. We're back to, we're back to crazy. So, but, but I think what, what's really interesting about half earth is, is the ambition and the hopefulness of it. You know, I, I'm not personally, I, I don't know if we could ever get to 50% of the earth protected, but what if we got to 40%, you know? And when I've talked to EO Wilson, I've, I've, you know, I asked him and other people who support this idea. Um, I'm like, okay, what about indigenous people? You know, like, what are you going to move all the indigenous people? And they're like, no, 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 no. Yeah, they're. You know, this includes indigenous lands. What we'll do is we'll give the lands to the indigenous people because indigenous people are some of the best protectors we've realized 100%. late. Yeah, we give them the land and we say, okay, this is yours to protect. Um, you know, we we give land rights to the indigenous peoples. So that's a huge chunk right there. And they also say we're not talking about every one of these areas has to be a quote unquote national park. You know. Some of these areas could still allow fishing. They could allow hunting. They could allow maybe uh, building to some extent. They could allow other things. It doesn't have to be completely off, you know, completely off limits to everything. Because that you're never going to get 50% that way. And you're never going to get people to buy in. But you make, you have different regulations for different places. What suits local people? What suits the local government? What suits different things? But you still have it set aside for either nature protection or, in in this case, we're going to need a lot of restoration. Mm -hmm. We're going to need rewilding. We're going to need all these wonderful things that conservationists have been talking about for the last couple of decades, but nobody's really doing on, a, on, on, on the scales that we need it at. So I think that that's one of the more exciting, optimistic, uh, 
and one of the things that I think that's so cool about the idea is that instead of us being like, oh my God, everything's going horrible. We're all, you know, this is all terrible. We're talking about something that's hopeful. We're talking about what if humans can get, can be so selfless that we actually say, no, 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 no. We're going to set aside this much land for our future generations of humans and for all the other species that, yeah. <laughs> you know, deserve this planet that lived here. Um, what if we could actually get to that point? Well, and that is a hopeful message. That is an audacious message, you know, and, and, and it, and it gives conservationists something exciting to talk about instead of just gloom and doom and depressing. Yeah. And, and it gives an actionable goal on something that kind of removes a lot of the complication, right. In a weird way. Like yeah. it's obviously not an, uh, it is complicated, but it's not. Mm-hmm. Uh, dealing with local governments and dealing with corporations and getting involved in all the intricacies of each re- geographic region, but more let's set yes. aside these pieces of land and see what we can do yeah. and get conservation back to what conservation used to be at its at its yeah. uh, genesis, right? Which is just putting aside places yeah. of land that are ultimately wild. I think that yeah, and it's a, it's you know, and it's a really easy message to get out publicly. You know, whether you like it or hate it, it's easy to understand. Whereas trying to, you know, explain other kinds of conservation methods today are really complex and complicated and, you know, it's a lot harder to wrap your minds around. But trying to say, hey, let's set aside half the earth for nature and indigenous people and, you know, maybe allow some things here and there, you know, for our, for our progeny, for ourselves. Boom. That's just, it's a lot easier to It's explain. also tangible in, in a way that I think is really important as a lot of giving has over the last 20 years has focused more on concrete results for in, in transparency when you're giving in the sense that mm-hmm. it's always been hard and giving to an organization like the Red Cross or something like that. I, I'm not saying the Red Cross does bad work. I'm just more saying like when you write a hundred bucks sure. to the Red Cross, it's very hard to sometimes understand where that money's being going to. Yeah. And maybe they've changed yeah. that. I'm not well-versed in the Red Cross. I'm not bashing them at all. But But like I look at like the Rainforest Trust or something based in Virginia where they can say, okay, if you give a hundred bucks, you can actually buy Mm -hmm. like an acre and a half in Indonesia or something like that to actually parcel off pieces of land. And I think when it comes to, you can remove a lot of bureaucracy and NGOs by doing something where it's just strict land buying and getting 50% of the earth back, right? And putting those into those wild areas. And I think a lot of people would want to donate to that. Yeah, land. I mean, land is a concrete thing, you know, and 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 natural ecosystems. It's a it's a con- it's not trying to say like, well, we need to set up this this new organization that will make sure that logging is done in a certain way and it's only done in certain places. And we're gonna, you know, that's so hard. But land is just very concrete, and giving rights to indigenous people is also incredibly concrete, and you know, would at least somewhat uh, allow them to uh, develop in the ways that they want to develop, rather than always constantly you know uh the western world telling them how they should develop um so i think that 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 is a very hopeful thing and i'm 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 curious you know as a journalist i try not to get too like i'm not going to be too rah rah one way or another on different issues because my job is to report but i'm curious to see where it goes i'm really curious to see uh it's very interesting to watch which scientists are jumping Mm -hmm. on um and uh, which scientists are criticizing it uh, it's interesting to see what NGOs are saying about it. If they're saying anything, most of them are keeping silent right now. Uh, but it's been really interesting to watch it kind of play out a little bit. 
and we'll, I'm really curious to see where it goes and if it takes off or doesn't, you know, but I do think we need clearly what we're doing right now in the conservation world is not big enough, uh, is not enough to sort of turn around, just like with climate change. Everything that we're doing is too small, it's too small scale. It's not unified, it's enough, it's not large enough. The message isn't big enough, it's not reaching enough. All those things, right? We, we kind of all know that, I think, at least in the environmental conservation world. So I think we just need some big, bold, big ideas, and maybe some of them are going to fail. Maybe some of them won't work, and maybe some of them will be laughed out. But like, we need to get more creative, and we need some of those ideas like that. Amen. Totally agree. I know we're getting close here, so I'm going to go into some rapid-fire, real-quick questions. Sure. Uh, yeah. Favorite environmental book that you would recommend to people? Favorite environment. You know, I love the Son of the Dodo. Is that, that's that's the title, right? Yeah, yeah, I think that's the title. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna look it up just because I want to get the author his name right. He's a he's a wonderful journalist. He's one of my favorite. Uh, yes, the Son of the Dodo, Dodo Island Bio Biogeography in the Age of Extinction, uh, 1997. David Quammen. Okay. So a lot of the stuff I've been talking about right now today about. Uh, E.O. Wilson, Biogeography, about setting aside how much land for how many species. It's it, He tells a remarkable story of how that was all discovered. Uh, it's a story about extinction. It's a story about loss, but it's also just a wonderful story about science. And it's a wonderful kind of, I think it's a really good introduction into how researchers look at extinction. So I think that's one of my, that's one of my favorites. How about documentary? Favorite document, like environmental yeah, documentary? Yeah, conservation. Oh, man. Uh, I've gotten to see some documentaries that haven't been released yet that I really like, but I'm not going to get into those because they haven't been released yet. You know, I'm going to go with, I, I know this sucks, but <laughs> I love David Attenborough. You know, I love his old stuff. Um, I love the Planet Earth series. Um, so I'm not going to go with, I probably should find, I should probably should think of something a little bit more. No, I mean, if you if we talk about getting but, appreciation for nature, I think Planet Earth yeah, is as good as it gets. yeah. And I mean, I, I do have issues with planet Earth and that sometimes I feel like they could set aside more of a conservation message. And I think they did. They've been working yeah, on that. Yeah, we've talked about a that a little bit on this them. podcast. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's an issue. That's different. But, you know, showing my daughter those, she's seven. You know, that's such an amazing way for children to, you know, uh, and we, we get her out camping. We take her to places and do all sorts of things. Obviously, her dad's an environmental journalist, so she's way too in yeah. informed about climate change and things. But being able to just show her some of those things and those amazing moments, you know, I think that we do need to... It, what it reminds people is that there is still wilderness worth saving and there are still species. And I love that they don't always just focus on, you know, they do these intimate stories about species that people have never heard of. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with David Edinburgh. All Admiral. right, I'll accept that. Just his whole, <laughs> his whole thing. No, he's, he's, I mean, he's the titan. Uh, yeah, he is. A if you could put a billboard on the side of the highway that disseminates one message in ten words or less that you think is just important oh to get God. out there, what is that? I would have to think a long time about what the message would be, but it would be something about climate change. I feel like we're at a period in our history where we we've been we've been handed this 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 issue that is really beyond our our species ability to comprehend. And I feel like it, we, you know, we've already missed several decades of being able to really enact change on that. And it's not the problem with the funny thing about climate change is we know the solution and the solution isn't impossible. It's actually very, <laughs> in some ways quite easy, you know? 
uh, but we just are unwilling to do it. So I don't, I don't know what it would say because I don't know how to convince people of that. You know, I don't know how to convince people. Of it. I, if I did, I'd, you know, I'd be tweeting that out all climate the time. Climate change is real. <laughs> climate, yeah, climate change is real. It's not fake news. You know, I don't know, man. But I feel like that, you know, if, if we don't deal with climate change, everything else, and this is not even just environmentally, everything else, society-wise, politics, it's just going to, it's going to get worse and it's going to get uglier because people under that much stress, we're not going to be nice to each other. I worry about that. So. And then the last question is, excuse me, where can people check out your work? Mm. Okay. So I'm a freelancer, which means I write for lots of different places. So I have a website called jeremyhance.com. I, I, every article I write goes up on that website. Uh, a link to it will go up there. So if you want to really want to follow me, you can follow that blog. You can find me on Facebook. You can find me on Twitter. You can find me on LinkedIn. You can also, a lot of what I'm writing about is uh, Manga Bay. I write for a lot. Uh, and I have a Rhino, Sumatran Rhino series coming out there probably in the next month or two. Uh, I've been writing for The Guardian for a long time. Uh, I've got a story coming out in HuffPost uh, soon. But basically, I'm kind of all over the place as a freelancer. So that's that's... You know, if you want to find me on Twitter, great. That's a good place to kind of see what I'm up to. Um, so yeah, or jeremyhands.com or, you know, just, you can even shoot me. An email. Awesome. Well, I'll, uh, I'll link all that stuff in the show notes and thank you so much for one, Thanks. all the work you do and two, for thank taking you, the Daniel. time for being on the podcast. Thank you everybody for listening. And until next time, stay wild. Thank you so much for listening. I honestly cannot express how much I appreciate you taking the time. For all information regarding this episode's guest, social channels, books, how you can support, etc., please check out our show notes. If you enjoyed listening, please, please, please subscribe to the podcast. We are everywhere that you can find podcasts. Subscribe to Escape the Zoo on YouTube, follow Escape the Zoo on Instagram, like Escape the Zoo on Facebook, and please share with your friends. It honestly goes so far and means so much to me. And lastly, if you'd like to be emailed with each new podcast and any other major Escape the Zoo updates, visit escapethezoo.tv and sign up for our email list. Thank you.